they were so submerged in their own physical agony that they were disconnected from themselves and they didn't even know what they thought, what they wanted. And that's why they couldn't articulate it because they would have to have some level of connection to themselves to know, well, I want to leave Egypt. I don't want to be a slave anymore to be able to say to God, please take me out. Hello, I'm Tanya, and you're listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you are listening to this and would like to support the work of Human and Holy or sponsor an episode of the podcast, please visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or reach out to us at info at humanandholy.com. Your sponsorships literally make every episode happen. So thank you to all of our sponsors for believing in Human and Holy and bringing us into the world. Today's episode is all about looking into the historical story of Yitzias Mitzrayim to help us find our own personal freedoms in our life. Today, I interview Gila Lowell, who is a mother of five, grandmother of two. She has been teaching a wide variety of Torah-related topics at Mayano Women's Institute, Oria, and several other seminaries over the past 22 years. She says she also makes sure to drag her students to museums to illustrate how understanding the cultural backdrop on which the Tanakh was written makes the text more accessible. In her spare time, she writes for Ami Magazine on matters of history and education. Today, Gila takes us on a journey through the Jews' redemption from Egypt to show us how their freedom from Mitzrayim was actually, on a deep level, a redemption of speech. How can articulating our innermost feelings help us become unstuck in our lives? How do we access the words when we feel swallowed up by exhaustion or emotion? And why does our language play such a huge role in our personal liberation? Join us today as we learn what actually kept the Jews stuck as slaves in Egypt and what we can do to break free of our own modern-day enslavements, too. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to be beginning. Can you start just by introducing yourself? Tell us your name and tell us a little bit about you, what you do professionally, and what you're interested in. Hi. I'm really, really honored to be on Human and Holy. You do amazing, amazing work here. All the podcasts are incredible. My name is Gila Lowell. I've been teaching seminary for, I guess, 22 years now. I've taught lots of different ages, but my focus really has been seminary for the past 22 years. I teach at Mayanot, at Oria. I've taught at many other seminaries over the years. What are my interests? Big, very proud Tanakh nerd, Torah nerd. Very proud of that. But yes, that's what I do for fun. Love it. All different levels of Torah. And among other things, which my students know and make fun of me endlessly about. And those No, tell us. <laughs> you can't leave me hanging. Oh, just whatever. I have a real thing for pop culture because I kind of look at it as a very powerful indicator about the generation. And so other than the fact that I actually like pop culture, like, you know, whether it's just different music, but I also just really look at it anthropologically because I feel like if you want to know where's the generation holding, what are they struggling with? What are their strengths? You know, just kind of look at the pop culture that they're producing. Like, what are they saying through that? And again, it could be like the most stupid pop songs on top 40 radio. That also says a lot if they're writing angry emo songs, or if they're writing really, really insipid pop, that's just kind of where they're at. So I'm just saying, not judgment, it's just, anyway, so yes, that's my <laughs> other little thing. Just- I didn't expect that. You're like, I'm a Tanakh nerd, and I'm into pop culture, like <laughs> the oldest and the newest. 
Right. So again, just for context, I started off as a film major. And then when I made Aliyah, I double majored in mass communications slash, you know, film, whatever, mass media and Tanakh. So that was undergrad. That's amazing. Okay, so today we are going to dip into your wisdom of Tanakh, and we're going to talk about the deeper meaning of the holiday of Pesach and how we could look at the story of the holiday of Pesach to better understand what it is that we were redeemed from and how we could tap into that energy now as we go into Pesach. So can you begin just by sharing a little bit of a background into what we're going to be discussing today? Yeah, sure. Specifically for Pesach, one of my all-time favorite sources is the Sfasemis, which is the commentary of the third Gera Rebbe on the Chumash. It's not an easy work. It's very, very scholarly. I mean, if he were alive today, he'd be amazing at Twitter because <laughs> he writes really, really <laughs> laconically. If he's referring to a Gemara, he'll quote two or three words for it, expecting you to understand. So his commentary is very short because he's like, you know, these two words from Yeshayahu. So right, you get what that whole parak is about. Okay, so now intersect that with this medrash that appears in Masechet Chavez. Again, hyperlink <laughs> oh two God. words. He just doesn't waste time like fleshing things out. But that's also why it's so incredibly satisfying because... We know that all the words of Torah are meant to be interpreted in four dimensions, right? There's the acronym Pardes, Pshat, Remez, Drash, Sod, studying, you know, in a profound way that it's not like, okay, this word is only meant to be interpreted one way. There's only one correct way in that there's Pshat, the simple text, the simple meaning. So it just says, you know, okay, this person went for a walk, like, okay. But then there's also Remez, which is the hint that the biblical authors, whether it's God or whether it's the prophets, that they embedded within their structure and composition of the text. So again, the order that they put the words in, that's why, for example, there are acronyms, right? Like sometimes, like our sages, you know, have Midrashim where they're like, oh, so Moshe Rabbeinu hid a hint that he's the author of this chapter of Tehillim, because if you take the first letter, like Mizmor Sher Leoma Shabbos, right? The psalm that we say on Shabbat. So if you take the first letter, it spells out Le Moshe, not in the right order, but those are the letters. So he hid in there through the structure of the words like that he's the author. And there's many levels of meaning that whether it's Esther and Mordechai hiding Hashem's name in the Megillah, like Yudke Vavke, within the Megillah, sometimes it appears in the right order, sometimes it appears backwards. And they're, they're insinuating to the learner, if you want to find God, he's definitely there. He's the engine behind everything that's happening. But you have to look. We're not going to write the word Yudkei Vavke for you to just see it to jump out at you. You want to find Yudkei Vavke as the engine behind the plot? You need to look and spell it out in between the words. So, so that's Remez. And then Midrash is what we know as the oral Torah traditions, whether it's Midrash Rabbah or Tanchoma or the Talmud. That's basically the messages that Hashem commanded not to be written overtly in the simple text, but that it should be learned out orally, more of like a soul of the text. Like the text is the body, and then there's the soul of it. And then there's the Kabbalistic level, that there's the mystical level that for people that know the Kabbalistic lexicon, right? So then learning the biblical text mystically isn't so mysterious because if you know, for example, the words for the Sfirot, right? And you know that chesed, gvura, right? So chesed doesn't only mean loving kindness. It's actually this concept. So then when the word chesed appears in Tanakh, you understand that, wait a second, it's true that they're talking about someone's ability to do loving kindness, but Kabbalistically, it has an added dimension. So with the Sfas Emes, the reason was the launching point for this, you know, little intro is that he, true to Hasidic form, writes on all four levels because Hasidus is the point of intersection of all four. When a person learns all four profoundly, they get to the point where they all intersect, they work together symbiotically, that's Hasidus. So that's why within Hasidus, there has to be Medrash, there has to be Pshat. It's not just Kabbalah, it's not just mystical. It's literally the weaving together into a tapestry of all of them. That is Hasidus. So that's what this Sfasemis does, I think, for me, the most impressively, specifically on the Yetzirah Mitzrayim story. Nice. Okay. I like that. Hasidus penetrates to the essence of all of the explanations and helps us weave them together to see the full story. 
and not just the isolated pieces. Right, exactly. Can you take us through his explanation of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? Right. So basically, he quotes Zohar, the Arizal, that all, a lot of the mystical sources talk about that the very essence of the holiday of Passover, and again, specifically the Seder night, and even the Exodus story, right? The Etzias Mitzrayim story in Pshat, in the simple text in the Tanakh, is that the whole point was to redeem speech. What the Zohar says is that the reason the Jewish people, you know, went down to Egypt and they were in this exile is because speech was an exile. Now, again, that's a very, you know, ambiguous and esoteric concept. Like, what does that mean, speech is an exile? And so then the different students of the Baal Shem Tov find different ways to explain that. Again, there's obviously the overlapping point, the common denominator, but they choose a different angle to highlight. So what this Fas Emes does, again, just explaining basic Hasidic ideas, what it means that speech is an exile is that when there is a fracture between the garments of the soul, because basically we know that the soul is impotent. It has no way to express itself by itself. It needs the body in order to manifest, right? So the four garments of the soul, according to Hasidus, are, right? So there's thought, speech, and action. The soul by itself cannot interact with the world. It's completely spiritual, abstract. It has absolutely no way to manifest anything in the world. So a person's deepest desires, right? Whether it's their will for what they think is their, you know, shlichus in the world, or how they want to keep Shabbos this week, like, you know, how they want to honor Shabbos, doesn't matter what it is. You always have a desire, but the desire cannot manifest and become a reality if it doesn't pass mm. through this continuum of constriction. So it slowly goes from like this abstract desire into a thought. And again, a thought is much more constricted than you like you want something. Sometimes you don't even know what you want exactly. And then it becomes a thought. Like you know what it is. It, it has words. It has it's concrete, but it's still stuck in the world of the abstract. And speech is so powerful because it's the first step that something moves from the abstract to the physical, where an idea, a desire suddenly becomes breath and syllables. The words aren't stuck in my head, it's still very nebulous. Suddenly, they're actually in this physical world. As soon as I say it, it's something physical. Whether it's my actual breath and the way it's broken up. So on the one hand, ironically, it's very, very constricted and limited. And yet suddenly I've done the most powerful step where I've taken just something totally abstract and made it manifest in this physical world. And speech is literally what's crucial to creating reality. Because then once it's in the physical world on this level, then if I say it to someone else, then we can suddenly start actually making it an action which results in a reality in the physical world. So that's the Kabbalistic idea of this whole idea that the Jewish people could not manifest redemption because they were disconnected from themselves. That's what I meant by fracture within the levels, that it wasn't flowing, like they were not in tune with themselves. Wow. So according to the level of Pshat, just the simple text, right? So where do we see this? So all of our commentators are jarred by one detail. We know that the Jewish people were enslaved and oppressed and tortured for hundreds of years, right? There's, you know, a debate whether it was 200 years or 400 years. Regardless, it was three digits of time where this was all we knew was this oppression. And not once does the Bible record a sentence, something, some sentiment where it says, and the Jewish people prayed for Hashem to redeem them. Nothing. The only semi-hint that we have that they were miserable and they wanted to get out of their misery was from one word, vayanchu, and they groaned. And so basically the commentators are like, wait, that's so weird. This is the Jewish people. Like we would have expected them to cry out to God saying, save us. And we don't have that recorded anywhere. And most of the commentators say that's because they couldn't. They were so submerged in their own physical agony that they were disconnected from themselves. And they didn't even know what they thought, what they wanted. And that's why they couldn't articulate it. 
because they would have to have some level of connection to themselves to know, well, I want to leave Egypt. I don't want to be a slave anymore to be able to say to God, please take me out. I don't want to be a slave anymore. Mm. And after so long in that misery, they were going through their routine and they were just gone. And so all they knew was that they were unhappy, but they didn't know exactly why. They didn't know what it was. There were so many different things. What was it that made this particular slave the most miserable? Was it the poor physical conditions? Was it the beatings? Was it the hard work? Was it the decree of the children? What was it that for this person, that was their breaking point? They just went through their routine hoping to survive, and they didn't think beyond that. And so they couldn't even articulate it because they were disconnected. All they could do was groan. The groaning is that sense of something is wrong, but I don't know what it is. Oh, that's so good because groaning is not language. Like they weren't able to articulate it. Exactly. I think that's really profound. All they could do was let off this almost animalistic tone, this like groan, this oi. And interestingly, the sages say that that's what Hashem was waiting for. He was waiting for them to pray in order to take them out because Hashem is always a mirror. He's always like reflecting back to us and always in a dynamic with us. So as long as they're literally bottled up inside of their pain, not reaching out to them to him, it's actually a vicious cycle because as soon as they would cry out to him, he'd be like, okay, great, you invited me, now I can take you out. And basically sages say that when they let off their groan, he's like, I'll take it. If this is what they can do right now, this, uh, okay, good enough. And that's when he sends Moshe Rabbeinu saying, all right, take my children out of here. Wow. So throughout the pshat, the simple text story in the Tanakh, so we really don't hear them talking so much because again, that's literally speech is in exile. They're disconnected from themselves. So they're not able to articulate their essence and what do they really want? In fact, There's one slight anomaly to that. The first time Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paro's palace saying, let my people go so that they will worship me in the desert, blah, blah, blah. And he walks out of the palace. And then, of course, Paro punishes the Jews for their insolence, saying, oh, if you guys have time to think about redemption and leaving, then you guys have too much time on your hands. And then he does the decree of the straw, where they have to go collect their own straw for the bricks. And the Jewish people, as soon as Moshe walks out, they start yelling at him, saying, what did you do to us? You went and made our situation worse. And they complain. So we just see that one case of complaining. But other than that, they're silent. So that's another important point, is that complaining and speech are not the same. A person can communicate what bothers them or they can vent and gripe and it's not the same thing. So even that communication of like, oh, Moshe, like, what did you do? They're not saying something essential. It's the animal soul that's suffering that's just saying, oh, like complaining about a local specific experience. It's not articulating something coherent and profound and essential about what it wants in its reality. What would it have looked like for them to express that essential desire to be freed from Egypt? So I think that would have been a beginning, is saying, yes, we're so happy you have come and we really don't want to be slaves anymore. And quite the contrary, they're like, why are you messing things up? Everything was fine until you went and you know made things worse for us. So basically, one, if they had articulated saying, Yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And then saying, but maybe this is not the way to do it. Could there have been a better way to handle this? And can you explain to us, why did you do it this way? I mean, this is true for all of our relationships. It's like I'm thinking about if my kid throws a tantrum about something I did, I'm going to react one way. I'm going to hear him one way and I'm going to respond one way. Versus if that same child says, I don't like what you did, Ima. And that's fine. They can tell me that. That's legitimate. And I'll say, okay, what didn't you like? Well, I didn't like this. And if they're able, they don't have to even sound like, you know, cerebral or like, they can even sound emotional, but just saying, and this is what I didn't like. Mm. Why did you do this? And sometimes I explain it to them and they're like, oh, well, I still don't like it, but that kind of makes sense. So that type of speech is crucial because that's relationship. And that's actually the root, both grammatically, just simply, and even Hasidus talks so much about this. The root Dalid Bet Resh, Diber, means two different verbs. It means talking, obviously speech, but it also means leadership 
or connection. For example, before we hear the shofar, we say a pasuk in Livnei Korach, right? Mizmor, we say, Yad beramim tachtenu. That, what does it mean? We're going to talk to the nations and they're going to be under us? We're going to talk down to them? No, it's saying that we're going to lead them, that we're going to be the light unto the nations as we're supposed to be. We're going to lead them via speech. So the whole point of speech is not just to convey information or to convince someone of something. It's to build a relationship. That's dibur, right? That's why it's a very big difference between Vayedaber Hashem versus Vayomer Hashem. And if you look up Rashi on the commentators, they make a big distinction that there's a mirror, which really is kind of self-contained. It's, I am making a statement. That's why God created the world with 10 amirot or ma'amarot, utterances. Mm. Let there be light. So it's true that he's creating a relationship, but he's like making a statement, let there be light. Whereas when he's speaking to Moshe, right, note that you can't, speak unless it's to someone else. That's Dibur. You can talk to yourself. You can make a statement without, you know, an address or another source, but you can't speak by yourself. So again, that's really Dibur, is that connection. So again, if they had spoken Dibur, they would be talking to Moshe, not at him. Not mm. complaining, what have you done? Because they didn't even want to hear an answer. And it says, and they couldn't hear anything he said because, right, from a short spirit, you know, from shortness of patience, of spiritual ability, of just, I'm at my wit's end, and from the hard work. And again, the Sfas Emes and all the students of Al Shem Tov have so much to say about that. What does that mean? Interestingly, Ruach is the level of the soul, of the five parts of the soul, right? Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chayichida, that's responsible for speech and communication. Mm. So when it says, Kotzer Ruach, they're short of Ruach, that's again another hint to speech being off limits, being in exile. Wow. Because they don't have that resource. Because why? Of Avodakasha, just they're completely broken and shattered because of the hard work. So if they're able to speak to Moshe Rabbein in a way that establishes a channel where there's back and forth, all bets are off. Like, that's great. You know, a person in a real healthy relationship, it's not about being a yes man. It's not about kissing up. It's about being honest, you know, hopefully tactful, diplomatic and sensitive. But in a healthy relationship, you should be able to tell the person even uncomfortable things but you have to do it respectfully, right? The famous, right. you know, motto is say what you mean, but don't say it mean. So that's Dibor. And they didn't do that because they kvetch and they're talking at him and they're not even listening, that there's no dialogue, there's no communication there. And also, like you said, that the beginning of redemption was them even being able to express their discomfort with their situation, that the beginning of any redemption is being able to articulate the constriction within us. Exactly. So the groan was up to the heavens, right? It has an address. They're yeah. articulating in their own way to God, saying, we don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. Only you can help. And yeah. that's why he could respond to that. So then moving along in the simple text story in the Pshat. So throughout the Makos, throughout everything, they're pretty silent and they leave Egypt and they're still silent. And then on the seventh day, right after leaving, they reach the banks of the Reed Sea, right? Or as we know it today, the Red Sea, just because of a typo, because of British cartographers, true story. <laughs> That's how the Yam Suf became the Yam Ha'adom. The Reed Sea became the Red Sea just because of a missing E. But they got to the Yam Suf and they see the Egyptians coming at them. And they still didn't fully internalize that they are free men. And they're standing on the banks. They don't know what to do. And there's the famous Medrash that, you know, they were split into four different groups. One wanted to commit suicide and die as free men. And one said, no, what do you mean? We should just return to Egypt and continue our routine. We managed until now. We'll manage. One said, no, we should go to war. And the last one said, no, we should just pray. And then Nachshon ben Aminadav jumps into the ocean and says, all of y'all are wrong. Forget this. Just go straight. And then Hashem splits the sea. When they finally pass the Reed Sea and they see the Egyptians chasing them and then suddenly Hashem closes the walls on the Egyptians and drowns their taskmasters, their oppressors. 
And when they see their bodies being washed up on the banks and they realize that they could never hurt them again, that was the first time the Jewish people understood that they were free, that that's it. They're not going to be whipped anymore. They're not going to have to answer to anyone about why didn't you finish your 500 bricks for today or whatever it is. And so what is the first thing they do? They burst into song, right? The thing that we say as part of Shacharit every single day, the song of the sea, and all of the levels of Torah explain that that's not a fluke. More than that, it didn't just happen then. That pattern of silence and slowly regaining speech through contemplation. And then when Mm -hmm. the redemption occurs, it is literally manifesting because the people burst into song. They're able to articulate their essence. So that's actually a pattern that happens in Megillah Tester, that happens in lots of different points in Jewish history where we see that there's the silence of just lack of self-awareness from the oppression. And the first thing we do when a redemption happens is we burst into song because song is just the most essential expression of a person. And note how articulate they are there, that they're able to say, you know, how they felt during this and seeing them drowning. And then what do they express at the very, when at the end, like, Hashem, we just want the base of Migdash. Like now that we know who we are, we're connected to our essence. That's what I want. So please give it to me. And that's how they end the song of the sea. They're so connected fully. And then this Fasemis ends off this particular piece where he says that they reach the absolute pinnacle of redeeming speech, redeeming it, right? It says that it was in exile from Yaakov Avinu, right? The Fasemis in a different section talks about that the Kol Kol Yaakov, when he goes out down into Egypt, that's kind of where the exile started because Yaakov is a voice. That's literally what he is. And so that goes into Yosef. Yosef is a further extension of this concept of speech. And again, there's plenty of pshat. If we had six hours, I would love to go (laughs) through it. it, But yeah, let's be realistic. So the point is, and then when did the Jewish people redeem speech? When at Mount Sinai, Hashem says, so tell me, what do you want? And they say, Nasev Nishma. They actually answer God back, like what more of a dialogue of communication of Dibur is that than Hashem saying, okay, so I'm here, you're here, I want to bond, what do you want? And they're like, Nasev Anishma, just tell us how to make this relationship. And what are the commandments called? Aseret Hadibrot. Yeah. Right? The translation of the Ten Commandments is so misleading. Because it's not the 10 mitzvot. We have 613. We don't have 10 mitzvot. It's the 10 dibrot. It's the 10 channels of communication, of speech that bind us to Hashem. And it's so beautiful because that's almost the culmination of redemption was that direct dialogue, as you said, where they were able to articulate and express what they had experienced and what they wanted. And then God was then invited to continue that conversation. And he actually had someone to be in a relationship with. Exactly. And more than that, according to one Medrash, they only heard the first two commandments from Hashem himself. There's another opinion that he said all 10 in one shot. There's a machlokis, whether they only heard the first two from Hashem or all 10. Regardless, though, the Medrash says that after they heard the first two, they said to Moshe, this is freaking us out. Like we're literally going to die. We're hearing Hashem's voice and it's too much for us. Can you step in? and mediate. And that's real communication. Now, again, of course, there was a downside to it, but Hashem created so much room that they were like, we don't care if this is right. We can't handle this. We can't hear all 10 for you. It's too much for us. And I was like, okay, got it. Moshe Rabbeinu, so, so step in here. Okay, good. So you finish the bonding process. But that's how much dialogue they had. They could really speak up for themselves. Say, Hashem, this is beautiful, but this is too much for us. Yeah. In order for them to be able to receive the Torah, they had to have been in touch with themselves because they had to have been willing to receive it. They couldn't just be passively experiencing whatever God gave them. They actually had to say, yes, we will accept this. The sad thing is that in the Jewish educational system, our children are sent the opposite message. Because what do all the Jewish educators emphasize? Hashem held the mountain over their head and said, if you don't accept the Torah, then this will be your grave, you know, the Gemara that says that, you know, Hashem held the mountain over their heads, saying that they didn't really have a choice and they had to accept the Torah. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. 
It's a medrash, and the Maharal of Prague says that anybody that learns midrashim literally is completely missing the point of why the midrash was written to begin with. He said every single midrash is a garment and a body, and that there's a message that is the reason the sage wrote the midrash, and he enclosed it and conveyed it in certain imagery, certain metaphors. And he said, as Torah learners, it is incumbent upon us to unearth the message within the medium. It's not that Hashem literally picked up Mount Sinai and threatened them, because where's the communication in that? Where's the free choice in that, right? So kind of teaching that literally is missing the point of what actually happened. What the sages, how they explain one of the ways about kafalahem harkigigit, or kafalahem harkigigis in Ashkenazas, right, is he held a mountain over their head. It's saying that the generation that left Egypt, to an extent, they really didn't have free will. When they said, Naseh v'nishma, we will do and we will hear, they said it to the most of their ability, as much as they could. But basically, they didn't have real free will in the sense that they had witnessed so many miracles. So after witnessing the 10 plagues and witnessing the splitting of the sea, how much free will do you really have? Can you really question, well, maybe there's no God? So that's the body. That's the essence. Why the sages of the Gemara tried to enclose it in the idea of kafalim harkigit, they held a mountain over their head. That's a whole other thing. What is a mountain over their heads? But even note the imagery. He's holding something over their heads, meaning in their heads they've witnessed so much they don't have free will anymore. And that's why the Gemara continues saying, so when did the Jewish people accept the Torah in a way of pure free will where there was absolutely nothing biasing them? They literally had no physical proof that there is a God, that he does miracles. In the days of Purim, they accepted it. With 100% free will, God did not send frogs into Ahasuerus' bedroom. He didn't send hail with fire inside of it. Everything was rolling along, routine, politics, in the palace. And he never did any miracles to convince a Jewish people, by the way, I'm in charge of everything. They chose to see him from their own 100% free will. So that's where the Gemara that starts with, he held the mountain over their heads and they said, Nasev ends with, and the Jewish people accepted it in Shushan, in Achashverosh's days, purely because, again, there was a lack of miracles, so they really were unbiased in any way. So again, the relationship is so much the essence of the receiving of the Torah and the way that it's taught with the coercion kind of goes against so much of the spirit of what the sages are trying to convey there. So I understand why educators do that. They want to imprint upon students the importance of not being self-absorbed and not being egocentric and only doing what feels good and that there's a place for bittel, right? You know, self-nullification. And that's how we accepted the Torah. But it's a very partial side of the story and also one that doesn't really speak to the generation today. Yeah. I think that the way you expressed it gave me a much deeper understanding about what galos even means and why the idea of going out of Mitzrayim in our own personal life every single year is so emphasized with the story of Pesach, because it's something that we can construct within our own minds and within our own realities. And so much of being able to actually connect to Hashem and accept Hashem and live a life of Torah and mitzvot is about being able to access a true choice and about being able to access who am I and articulate to myself where I struggle, where I don't struggle, where I want to connect, where I'm struggling to connect, and then to be able to express that to Hashem and to open ourselves up to receive his response and to be in a relationship. So in an age where I think it is emphasized for people to really be connected to themselves, to have a true sense of choice. I think it brings a great gift to our Yiddish guide, especially in the way that you're expressing the transformation from Gullus to Gula, which is that we can really express who we are, how we're feeling, connect ourselves so that we can make a true deep choice to enter into redemption and to enter into God's Gula. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. I guess as an educator, this is one of the things that I'm a little bit frustrated about nowadays is with the digital revolution and the communication revolution with social media, there's a lot of Amira, a lot of talking going on and communication, real communication has really taken a hit, whether it's, you know, online bullying or or just in so many ways, 
I just feel like our generation needs Pesach Seder so badly more than anybody else. Like we need to exploit it and really use it to heal ourselves. Because, I mean, I spent a long time also as a Shadchanit. And I just remember why I kind of left was I was just so frustrated dealing with people, young adults, that marriageable age, and having to explain very basic things to them about healthy relationships and specifically via communication. We know we have a social anxiety crisis on our hands. I mean, other than anxiety in general being one of the characteristics of whether it's Gen Z or whatever, but that's the real epidemic. But specifically social ineptitude, social anxiety, it's so pervasive because of the way that technology has developed and impacted our young people, that instead of helping us express ourselves better, and with all of the sensitivity, I'm not going to like call out the woke movement specifically, but just in general, this attempt at being more considerate and being more caring. And then I find that we're not actually necessarily actually taking advantage in the best way possible of the self-awareness that we would assume that would come with that. Because if I accept you and you accept me and it's kumbaya and everything's great. And the irony is though, is that when people say things we're uncomfortable with, we attack them. So then how are we any different than any totalitarian regime that people were literally fighting against? So I think the ability to be self-aware and to speak, I think, which is the essence of Pesach, I think that that's been lost. That is my prayer literally annually is that people literally delve into the Haggadah, into Pesach, into the Hasidus behind it, which really redeems us as individuals because it literally encourages us to connect with ourselves in order to express ourselves in a dignified manner. And so it's just, it's not about, you know, having the most likes on your tweet or on the meme that you posted. It's about, are you truly expressing yourself? Do you even know who you truly are? Again, not what your animal soul tells you you are, right? But who you really are. So are you suggesting that the incredible amount of social media that young people consume is what's clouding their self-awareness, like a true self-awareness where they're able to access what they really want or feel? I mean, I definitely don't think that's the whole thing because I think it's such a multifaceted thing. But I definitely think that there is a significant percentage that contributes to that. Like I know from students that I've taught over the past, let's say, three, four years, where one of the things they've articulated to me, I'm thinking of several students that I had over the past three years specifically, that they expressed a tremendous anxiety about expressing themselves because mm. they were concerned about getting attacked, canceled, or whatever. I don't even mean on social media. For example, I'm thinking of one student in particular mentioned that one of her parents used to video stuff and put it up and whatever. And because they're always videoing, putting it up on whether it's Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is, they always feel under the microscope and under mm. the you know, magnifying glass. And they are walking targets for everybody's opinion. And so that shuts them down. So I think that that intense life in the spotlight, and again, you don't have to be a celebrity to live that. That's the crazy no, thing. Once upon a time, yeah. it was such a tiny percentage of the population that dealt with the scrutiny. And now everybody and their first grader is literally living under this scrutiny. And so it's very hard to express yourself honestly when you're like, choose your words carefully because you're going to get destroyed in the comment section. So I do know that, yes, even in the from community, I've had literally Chabad students say to me, I am very careful about how I speak between friends. Forget, like, obviously social media. You only put the best filtered image out there. But they're so terrified of expressing themselves. And the question is, we know that your speech is who you are. In fact, our Rebbe, I believe, had an amazing interpretation on the four sons in the Haggadah. He has multiple beautiful thoughts, but one of the things that he says, we know that the wording of the Haggadah, before it introduces each son, it says, you know, Chacham Mahu Omer, right? The wise son, what does he say? Russia, Mahu, like, what does he say? And the Rebbe says, no, you can understand Mahu Omer very differently. You can understand it as Mahu Omer, what does he say? Or Mahu Omer, what he is, is what he says. His essence, the root of his personality comes out via his speech. And so that's the question. Are people even aware anymore about who am I? 
if you're always worried looking over your shoulder, then sometimes you also start that fog starts to seep inside. It's like, well, don't think that because it's not nice or someone might get offended if you feel that way. So just don't, don't be offended and don't, instead of assertively saying, I feel this way, my feelings are legitimate and that's okay. Now it doesn't mean I have to go yell at somebody and I don't have to, but it's just important, the boundaries. I think that's the thing that the social media revolution has created. The boundaries have been completely erased because again, like there was once upon a time you used to check email. You had to go to your laptop or computer. But if you're on your phone, you could be sitting in the bathroom, as some people do, replying to people. So like the boundaries of where do I end and someone else begins, time, space, all of that just gets blurred. So yes, you can have a very intimate conversation with someone sitting in Tokyo, Japan, and you've never met them, but you could be spilling your guts to them because they get you. So all the boundaries are blurred. And I think that also caused a severe blurring inside of us as well. Interesting. But again, these are just literally just a few puzzle pieces. There's a much bigger picture here. Yeah. And something that I'm wondering, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is do you think that part of the reason why this external noise clouds our self-awareness is because in order to come to true self-awareness, you need to have the safety to explore who you are and how you feel and what you think. And if you're not able to explore that externally through speaking to friends or anything that you put online has to be your definitive answer or opinion. And you're going to evolve and you're going to change. So I wonder if we stunt ourselves from even developing our own opinions and perspectives, because we feel like anything that I express outwardly because it's permanent has to be fully developed and has to be something I can stand behind forever. I cannot agree with that enough. I mean, the safety is so important because again, no man is an island. We are social creatures by design. We need each other. I mean, the way the Talmud puts it, ochavruta ometuta, friendship or death. Like one of the greatest sages of the Mishnah, Chonia Magel, you know, basically when he came to a point in his life where he didn't find a colleague, a friend, someone that got him that he could speak to and really feel this person gets me, I can talk to him, I can relate. You know, the way the Talmud puts it, he asks God for mercy. That's the Talmud's euphemism where he asks God to take his soul. It's basically committing suicide. But again, not actively. When a sage or someone says, and he asked God for mercy on himself, it's basically saying, please take my soul. I don't want to be here anymore. And so the Talmud says, like, he reached this point of where he couldn't relate to anyone. He requested mercy. And then his punchline is, yeah, because without a colleague, without just basic friendship, then what, what's the point of life? We just can't go on like that. And a real friend is not someone that clicks like on all of your stuff and isn't even that likes everything you do. It's someone that just accepts you for who you are. I'm thinking of my own friend that she is, I don't think I'll ever be able to thank her enough just for being alive. But someone that, again, we're very different people. She's not Chabad. I am live very different lives, you know, different countries, different everything. But she just has my back. She listens and we can do things out. But that safety is there that it's not an attack and she accepts me. And of course, I accept her. And it's just, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing. That's friendship. It's not being the same. It's just truly creating space. You know, I don't know what I think about this. Can I like toss this? What do you think? And again, also boundaries. It's just always checking in. Wait, do you have the emotional budget to listen now? Not right this second. Can we talk tomorrow? Right? So that balance, but that safety is from the boundaries and the acceptance. So that's very much lacking nowadays. Yeah. And I also think that part of the safety is knowing that this person will not define you by what you're sharing with them. It's very rare for me to have someone who I feel I can open up to about something that I know is fleeting. Like if you're having a really hard day and it's clouding your vision about something and you (laughs) want to express it to someone, but you don't want them to then define this whole piece of your life by that expression. So whatever it is that you're having a rough time with, knowing that they understand that this is a fleeting expression, that's why I want to ask you. What is the distinction between emotional vomiting and like you were saying, Debor, real self-expression? Because part of that self-expression happens through a bit of an emotional vomiting till you like clear your mind, until you're able to really access what you really want. Do you feel like there has to be some of that, I guess, expression that isn't so articulate in order to get to that clear 
articulate self-expression? Oh, I love this question so much. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so basically, self-awareness it's not an ATM. It's not like, okay, I'm now going to go into a quiet room sure. and yeah. angels are going to sing and there's going to be <laughs> violins and I'm going to have this epiphany. It's a process, right? And it is, it's a lot of separating the chaff from the weed and sifting through. So the question I think is, do we need somebody else present to go through every single process like that. Mm. Obviously, we have to wade through a lot of stuff in order to make a distinction. Okay, so this is nonsense or this is not essential. Wait a second. Is this essential? No, I don't think so. And then just like literally right. just going through this process until we have that clarity of, okay, got it. Okay, so A, B, and C, and D, those were all not essential, but they helped me understand that E was actually essential. Okay, because I think certain things we can do on our own. But I think it just depends on the person. It depends on the issue because there are people who are more independent. So I don't know if there is a one size fits all answer. I just think that it's really important for a person, regardless of whether it's with another person or not, to make distinctions for themselves about what is my goal right now? I mean, again, John Gray made a fortune, you know, writing his book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. He said that, you know, a lot of shalom bias issues are really just revolving around the fact that men and women use speech differently. When our sages said that women have nine measures of speech out of the 10 that God created, they're not saying that women are chatterboxes. They're saying that women truly know how to use speech in multifaceted ways to bond, whereas men, that's not their forte. So one of the things that John Gray writes is that men want to problem solve and women want to bond through speech. So they want to vent. And so basically what causes tremendous blowups is, you know, the wife will come home. Oh my God, my boss is such a jerk. Do you know what he did today? And he's like, well, you have to hand in your letter of resignation. She's like, what resignation? What are you talking about? I'm not quitting my job. But you just said your boss did this. This is an abuse of labor laws. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, Ugh. right? So he literally says that one of the simplest techniques to literally bypass that blow up. And again, I found this is also true for friends, not only spouses or family members. I mean, I've literally said this to relatives, you know, female relatives. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Before we start talking, what's the point of this? Do you want me to help you find a solution? Like, is this a concrete discussion or is this just venting empathy? I want to be able to provide you with what you really need. So just give me a heads up because I'm not telepathic. And so again, they'll be like, okay, no, I'm totally venting. So just shut up and listen. Done. Here, let me like, you know, rub your shoulders or pass you a hot chocolate. I'm here. Lay it on me. And then it's like, oh, no, no, I really need to pick your brain because the situation is getting out of hand and I really don't know what to do. So just clarifying, what is my goal from this introspection? Because just sitting there staring at our belly buttons, even that's not necessarily helpful because if we don't know what we want to get out of it, then how can someone else help us with that? So the other person is just like, what do you want to get out of this? So again, like Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, that's also because of this the role that speech plays in manifesting reality, that's what's standing behind this idea of hidbodedut, right? The idea that a Breslov or Hasid is supposed to like seclude himself and contemplate, but not just contemplate inside of his own head, articulate to God, stream of consciousness, exactly what it is that you need on a daily basis. Because again, it's that same idea that don't leave it trapped inside your head, like manifest it and communicate to God in a relationship, like literally come out of your mouth audibly. But the whole point is to tweeze apart, like to create clarity. So contemplation, when it happens inside of us, just inside of us without either writing. That's why journaling is actually very powerful because it's taking the continuum even further down to the level of action. You're not just manifesting on the level of speech. You're now moving it down to action, which the Friedrich Rebbe writes about in one of his Maimarim, about the power of in Elul. You, he says you have to write everything down. It's not enough to make a personal inventory in your mind. He said, write it all down. Mm. He said that's the best way to prepare for Tishrei, is spending all of Elul journaling. And he says, don't hold back. He says, don't give yourself any like deals, any don't cut yourself any slack. He said, put it on the table, what you need, begashmias uberuchnias. What you need spiritually wow. and physically, he says, get it all down there. I don't know if this answers your question, but basically I think it's important for the person to first clarify for themselves, what is my purpose? 
Because again, then that's going to very much mold the communication. Because if I tell my friend, okay, I just need to vent because I feel like a pressure cooker that's about to explode. So she's sitting there listening. And of course, she knows not to judge me because I'm going to say the opposite tomorrow. (laughs) Right? I'm telling her, literally, this doesn't define me. I just need to get this out. And then she's creating space for me so that when I need to contemplate and I'm ready to do the more problem-solving inner work of, no, no, I really want to find a solution for whatever it is, whether it's this bad habit I want to kick, whether it's this toxic relationship that I don't know what to do about. I don't like the way my mother is speaking to me because my mom has borderline personality. And again, theoretical ideas. That's also why friendships, they can't happen in an instant. Because if a person doesn't know you, if they haven't been with you over time, so then they have to see, okay, so there's there's a continuum here. There's a process. So that's why I think it's just important for the person to define for themselves what do they want from the communication, what's the goal. And then the friend listening creates that space. Okay, I've got it. Go. Or, okay, so what you just said, you mean this, right? Okay, so now I'm going to take this very seriously and let's sketch this out. Pros, cons, you know what? This is what I think. Nice. So if we take it back to the story of Vitius Mitzrayim for a second, you were speaking about how part of the Jews' enslavement and their stuckness was the fact that they couldn't even access their self-awareness about how miserable and depleted they were. And then when they finally groaned, God was like, yes, you finally expressed your discomfort with the experience. You're ready to be taken out. So Obviously, when we're coming up to Pesach, something that we always talk about is our own personal Mitzrayim and our own personal limitations and how we could break free of those limitations. And looking at the story of how the Jews left Mitzrayim is a way for us to learn how we could leave our own Mitzrayim. So what would you say in a person's modern day experience of being limited by something, what would you say is that similar process of accessing the self-awareness, being able to properly articulate it in order to then actually free themselves from whatever it is they feel constricted by. So the Baal Shem Tov created a formula for it, that anytime we want to fix something that's broken inside of ourselves, it's called chashmal, which again, in modern Hebrew means electricity. No, it has nothing to do with that. But it's short for chashmal mal, which means silence, speech, speech. And his students, you know, developed this further saying that the process of fixing anything or grappling with any limitation or discomfort is a three-step process of silence or shtika or shtika havdala hamtaka. Because chash is another way in the Bible to say to be quiet, right? To be silent. Mal, mila, word, right? So melel, speech. And so basically the three-step process is first, whenever you're grappling with something, Just sit with it in silence. Observe it. I guess mindfulness is actually a very powerful technique for this. It's like, don't judge it. Don't anything. Just observe it through nullification and silence. And just watch what floats up. Where does it go? And again, like the brain is always chattering away. No, you can't think that. That's bad. That's heresy. That's arrogance. That's Ignore that. The Baal Shem Tov talked, like, just ignore, ignore that voice. It's all the Yetzir Hara, no matter how righteous it sounds. There's no place for it. Right now you're doing God's work. And so you're trying to get to Avodah Hashem. Start with silence by, I guess nowadays we would call it validating, you know, just validate your feeling. Again, it's not justifying. By sitting in silence and validating it, you're not justifying it. You're not giving it a hechsher. Wow. You, so you could have the thought, I hate this person so much. So again, okay, so you hate this person. No, okay. So you had this thought. What does this mean that you're like an evil, you know, serial killer? No, you had a thought. So on the level of chash, right, or shtika, first observe, okay, you hate this person. What else floats up for you? I hate this person because she always embarrasses me in front of our friends. Okay, what else? And just sit in silence until you've really like exhausted. Okay, so I kind of get where I'm holding now. And then after you feel you really have a grasp of this particular thing I'm struggling with. I've really listened in silence and nullification to everything this inner voice has to float up. Then you start doing the havdalah, the distinction, tweezing apart. Okay, how much of this is chaff and how much of this is wheat? How much of this is nonsense and how much of this is like a very real issue? So just sitting there, again, without judgment, 
and trying as much as possible to tweeze things apart and putting them in their proper perspective. And then the final step in the most ideal world is hamtaka sweetening. We're actually able to rectify whatever it is that is broken within us, right? That's actually what's called hamtakata dinim, right? Sweetening the judgments. It's actually reaching the place of rectification of tikkun. So I guess like to illustrate, right? So if it's a toxic relationship, you know, so it could be like, okay, what's wrong with this person? What they're doing? What's bothering me so much? Okay, so this was me. I was being crabby. I really, I didn't react properly to this person. Like she didn't do anything. I misread what she did. But wait a second. She gaslit me here. And no, that wasn't in my head. That was gaslighting. And she did it again and again. That was fact. That wasn't, you know, okay, wait a second. So look, out of the 10 times I interacted with her, she gaslit me eight times. Okay, that's problematic. And then deciding, okay, am I going to put this person on mute? Am I going to block? How am I going to protect my mental health in my interaction with this person that insists on gaslighting? Again, this it might be a lame example. I'm sorry, but on the fly. And again, there's so many different ways we can do this. This is also something that can be done if it's helpful to a person with a friend. This is why, by the way, a mashpia is a completely indispensable resource in a person's life. Because sometimes our friends are not trained to really walk us through it. Whereas a mashpia, that's literally what their task is, is to not just listen to the silence, you know, to, okay, what's floating up, but to be able to be like, wait a second, that situation, do you realize that you didn't eat all day when she approached you and you were totally hangry? And that's why when she did that, you just completely lost it. Or to be like, no, 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 you have boundaries issues. You always let people walk all over you and you justified her gaslighting. I'm not going to let her do that. No, that's gaslighting. No, don't justify that. So sometimes we need that objective voice on the outside to help us with the distinction, with the havdala. And then the hamtaka is up to us, whatever that is. But it's literally Hasidus already mapped out that there's a way to do things. One of the coolest things my daughter told me, my daughter's married, Baruch Hashem, and, but she's still close with all of her high school friends. You know, they're literally like a giant sisterhood. And so before Pesach, they have this WhatsApp group where they just vent. But again, they'll literally be like, I hate Pesach cleaning. It's so hard. Like I just got married, you know, six months ago. It's my first time making Pesach. I'm freaking out. And they literally just, you know, kind of vent to each other. But they also support each other. And so they listen. So even if a person's struggling with halacha, with Pesach itself, you can find the sweetness if you go through, just admit. So this friend was able to say, Pesach is so hard for me. Right now I feel like I hate it. And they're like, right, it's really hard for you. We so hear you. It's a beautiful mitzvah, but we totally hear this is hard for you. And there's nothing wrong with that, that it's hard for you. That alone gave her the strength to continue preparing with joy because that took so much of the bitterness away mm. of the mitzvah. Because when you feel like, oh, I hate this mitzvah, it's like, and it's just me and all the different thoughts the Yitzhah likes to put in our head. Whereas she had this team, this whole squad of, we get it. It's so hard. You're right. It's really hard doing it on your own. And you're going to get through this and you're going to enjoy Pesach Bezrat Hashem, you know, and also, of course, tips and whatever. But, but it's just that process of first validation, listen, distinction. Because her friends pointed out to her, but it's such a beautiful mitzvah and it's also very hard. That's the reality. I mean, there's no two ways around that. It's a hard mitzvah to do. But you can't ignore the fact that it's a beautiful mitzvah. So yeah, we just have to hold the paradox. It's both at the same time. And then that sweetened the process for her. So she went back to scrubbing, cleaning, but saying, I can do this. That is a sweet example. I wonder if you'd feel comfortable to share if there's any example from your own life where you experience this process of being able to articulate a limitation or a Mitzrayim restriction that you had in your life and how that helped you find your personal gula? Oh my gosh, this formula is literally my saving grace. (laughs) I shudder to think where I would be if I had never heard of this process. Like mamish azochenveh. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's interpersonal relationships or with halacha. I mean, just with every facet of life, it's Gosh, to find like one example, oh, that's so hard. I guess the simplest example I could think of is really like when I used to struggle with certain feelings. I have a temper and just, you know, struggling with things that I'm not proud of. And I remember talking to one of my former mashpias, you know, years ago and just fessing up 
<laughs> this like horrible secret, you know, oh no, I have this, you know, thing that I struggle with. He had this like belly laugh and he just started laughing. He's like, so what happened? So the eight star high was literally messing with your head, telling you, you are a bad person because, and he was like, you know, that's the eight star high like favorite technique. He says, the way you can know if the voice inside that's speaking is the Yetzir Tov or the Yetzir Hara, in Hasidus, we have this idea of a Hasidish Yetzir Hara, right? The Yetzir Hara, that he doesn't tempt us with pork and cheeseburgers and I don't know what. No, he tempts us with Rambam and with chapters of Tehillim and mm. with mitzvos. And it's like he shows up with the Borsalino and the Sirtuk and the beard to the Pupik and like, oh, Gila, why did you bother waking up today? You literally showed up in front of a Kaddish Baruch Hu and you daven shachris like that? You didn't even mean a word of Amida that you said. You just rattled it off. How could you spit in God's face? He, and so he has all these different techniques. And my former Mishpia said to me, he says, the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Hara can sound almost identical, both in the content, but not in the form. He says the telltale sign when it's a Hasidish Yetzir Hara versus the actual Yetzir Tov, he said, is the way they speak. One, he said, the Yetzir Hara always speaks about you, who you are. You are lazy and you are a liar and you are, he says, the Yetzir Tov will never speak to you like that. She will only talk about things that you did. Because, and again, he also said that the Yetzir Tov, the Nefesh Alokis, is feminine, he said. It's like a very warm, loving mother. And he said the Yetzir Tov, for some reason, is masculine. And he said the other telltale sign is that the Yetzir Hara always speaks very intensely and riles up the emotions. So he'll dredge up guilt and he'll dredge up like all kinds of intense things. Whereas the Nefesh Alokis is very calm because she has all the time in the world. She's infinite. Whereas the Yetzir Hara, is limited. So he's going to amp up the stress because he's limited. Whereas Nefesh Lokas is, okay, if we didn't do it today, we'll do it tomorrow, but we're going to get there because we are good. So he said, listen, how do you feel? Do you start feeling agitated? The adrenaline starts running. That's the Yitzhahara. No matter what they're saying, throw it out. Nefesh Lokas, if it's a voice that's saying, oh, I feel sad that I did that. I wish I hadn't done that, but you don't feel guilt, devastation. He says, then that's coming from a real place. But again, that takes work. That's not going to be like, okay, read it, got it. Yes, downloaded no. it, run program. It, you have to practice it. You just have to be patient and loving with yourself to begin with, to have that endless nefesh alokis patience saying, you'll get there, don't worry. So you messed up this time. And what happened? Yes. And then you get to that other time. You're like, go you, you did it. And then it stops becoming a battle at some point. Yeah. This idea that you expressed about how honest articulation and self-expression is the beginning of Geula and beginning of a personal redemption right. really resonates with me. And then I do agree that it really is a process of sorting out how to properly do that within you so that you're really able to access that voice within you that understands what's going on. Like you said, knowing the differentiation between your, your Nefesh Bahamas, your Nefesh like Kiss, which part of you is this voice coming from? And to really be able to piece those two apart, I think is the process and the journey of life. Yeah. So every year, Pesach comes and we all have our limitations that we want to break free of. This is a beautiful beginning. For the record, I will say that when doing very, very profound spiritual work, I found that writing it down is very helpful. Again, it doesn't mean professionally journaling or whatever. Just being able to see, because the thoughts swirl in our head, and there's so many of them that it can be very hard to do the Havdalah process, the distinction process, by having a nice little table that we're envisioning. Sometimes it's just useful to write it down on a paper and just literally toss every point. Don't judge. Throw it. And then you see it in front of your face. You don't have to spend energy remembering everything. And then also, when you see it in front of you, it can be really earth-shattering in a good way. To be like, why did I even debate this? Look, there's eight con points and there's three pros. What was I even worried about? The answer to me is so clear. So I think that's another thing that people just don't do enough, like is really just systematically validating things in writing in a concrete way, especially since, oh, I'll just. But having a notebook, a pen, being able to hold it in your hand, write it down. No, not just open up a file in Word or in notes in your iPhone or whatever. Give yourself the time to be able to look at it like, where am I? And just draw your own map. 
personally, I found it to be infinitely helpful. I can't imagine if I did everything just in my mind, I don't think it would be nearly as effective. Yeah. Well, because you can't hear yourself clearly, like it's muddled. Right. That's the power of being able to, like you said, that the Jews finally said something out loud and they finally directed it to God. By the way, that when Hashem, how did he end Matan Torah? He literally gave us written tablets. His desire trickled down through all four levels, through all four worlds, right, of the continuum. Went from his desire, thought, speech, into action. He literally wrote down, the Jewish people could see the letters, and Moshe Rabbeinu carries down God's journal, saying, okay, this is our relationship. That's not just like a cutesy thing, like, oh, cool, we got tablets. It's like, he wrote it down because he wanted to be concrete to really manifest fully through all four worlds. Nice. Thank you so much. This was beautiful. And I'm going into Pesach with this. And I thank you for that. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And thank you for sharing in such a beautiful way. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Where do you feel stuck in your life? What is your current Mitzrayim? Have you summoned up the energy to wade through your emotions? To be able to articulate precisely where you feel caged, self-awareness is the beginning of our redemption. If you feel stuck, have you taken the time to articulate what your experience is? Or are you groaning? So lost in the experience, you can't imagine ever seeing change. Personally, I can so relate to this process. How the moment I step outside of my wordless limitations and begin to find the language for what I feel, my personal freedoms begin to unravel before me, welcoming me to enter, to find the courage I need to call out clearly for change. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha mechaberet nishmati tamidilecha mechaber mechaber. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Hasidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.